Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have a very special guest, Scott Fisher. He's an old-time friend as well as a professional colleague. He was born and raised in North Carolina and moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in 2006 to pursue a degree in East-West Psychology and a Master's in Somatic Psychology. In the past, he has worked as an expressive therapist at the California Pacific Medical Center, a behavioral coach at St. Vincent's School for Boys, as well as a wilderness guide with the Stepping Stone Project. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Kareem. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so, Scott, why don't you start us off first by telling us about your upbringing? Um, you know, was your family religious? Uh, was there a specific cultural um, lean that they had? Uh, how would you describe your, your family background and upbringing? Absolutely. Well, um, I was born in Greensboro, North Carolina, back in 1981, which, uh, you know, had, I don't know, 100,000 people or something, kind of a typical American suburban town. And my parents uh, are both Jewish, and they were, I think, partly drawn there because there's a substantial Jewish community there, even though it's in the American South. And so, yeah, we we sort of treaded the line between what's what they call reform Judaism and conservative Judaism. But I would just put us under the broad umbrella of American Judaism and say that, you know, that was, that was my family's religious faith. And that was, you know, to an extent, certainly cultural title or, or label that was bestowed on me. Um, and that I, you know, dealt with and, and managed and related to in my own way and still do. And yeah, and you know, we weren't, quite we weren't particularly religious but we would have shabbat dinner a couple times a month and we'd go to the services here and there and you know it's certainly our kind of north star orientation and i have a bar mitzvah too nice so how much of uh judaism did you identify with as a religious worldview versus more of a cultural um perspective or or, or cultural robe so to speak that's a great question man I really liked this notion of Judaism. Um, it's I am no scholar in Juda Judaism, Kareem, but this notion of Ein, Ein Sof, I believe it's referred to, which is kind of like this idea of God is unknowable. And I really related to that. And even as a kid, I just strongly related to that notion mm -hmm. um, that, you know, God is in the wind and God is in nature and God is all around us. And I feel like Judaism, it's not like the focus of Judaism, but Judaism allows for that, even in in the Americanized version. You know, I remember kind of sitting in temple and being bored and like reading the translation of the prayers. And I feel like this is in there, you know, so... So that part I did relate to, but I've never really been kind of like a Ten Commandments kind of guy or a, or much of a Torah scholar. And um, I got interested more culturally as an adult, kind of when I moved out to the Bay Area and there were like, you know, Berkeley hippie Jews. And I, I would say it, it's it's never been kind of like a focus of my 
my spiritual religious orientation. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting is that um, theologically, I would say Judaism has a similar perspective of the divine uh, as Islam. You know, this idea that the divine is incomprehensible. Um, you know God through, you know, nature and, and creation as kind of sign points or signatures of how the divine manifests. So there is that similarity because it's very, of course, strict as far as its monotheism and making sure you don't ascribe images or ideas, right? I mean, no, I don't think any Jewish person would say, yeah, God is a man in the sky or something like that. Exactly. And I feel like as non-Christians, you know, one benefit is that we at least partially escape the white man in the sky <laughs> motif. Partially, we're still subject to it, but... <laughs> right, right. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about your specializations in therapy. So some of the things that you do is you help clients with social anxiety, ADHD, um, important life transitions such as, you know, leaving for college or, or um, becoming... Uh, you know, more autonomous as an individual, etc. But maybe for the audience, they don't—they're not really clear on what is somatic psychology exactly. So, what does the word somatic mean, and what does psycho—what uh, does psychosomatic therapy even look like? Like, how does that work? Are you doing like, you know, physical exercises and talk therapy? I mean, how does that actually look in a session? Yeah, well, you know, somatic psychotherapy is a really broad term that that describes a lot of different modalities that that different people use and you know every somatic psychotherapist is going to practice differently because that's just how it is and and i studied somatic psychotherapy which um you know the word soma is is body as far as i understand um and you know so we explore the relationship of the mind and body as kind of a, a groundwork or foundation of um of getting to know, getting to know ourselves. And, you know, I work with teenage boys and a lot of them don't really want to delve into, you know, the feelings in their heart and what wants to come out. They don't even want to sit in an office. So yeah, you know, I, I, we go out for a walk or a hike and they, they start talking and they feel comfortable. And, and so that to me is somatic therapy because we're moving to, to allow the, the work to come into the body. So we start to, to get out of our head. We start to see a different perspective on the stories that, that we carry around. And, um, and so, you know, for me too, I certainly pay attention to my own body and what I notice come up during different sessions. And I think it's very telling into, into the clinical work and, and what might be going on for the client. And, with teenagers too, I consider it in the family system. I know how I feel around the parents and how they interact with me. And I know how I feel in the household. And, and certainly I know how clients hold themselves and, you know, and how they hold themselves in relation to other people and to family members. And, and I'm always tracking, tracking body when I work with people, my own and, my own and theirs. So it almost sounds like part of um, psychosomatic therapy is bodily movement in order to open up the channels of mental emotional blockage, so to speak, right? So it's like about getting everything to be more fluid and uh, reintegrated. And you used a phrase being stuck in your head. Um, can you tell us more about what that means? And 
uh, is there a difference between mind and brain, for example? Because some might say, well, the brain is part of the body. So what do you mean by the connection of the mind with the body, so to speak? Yeah, I just think of a recent client that I met for the first time. And, and this is common. And I see this in myself sometimes, too, where we really we spin around, you know, and we might rub our chin and rub our eyes and rub our hair. And we just we wonder about the past and we wonder about the future and we wonder what's wrong with me and I don't sleep eight hours a night and I don't drink eight cups of water a day and I do this too much and I do this too much and you know we get so strongly identified with this I and uh, you know and it's important to to dissect that narrative and uh, I, I mind and brain, I mean, different people need different languages to understand. Part of our work as therapists is that we're artists and we paint different pictures and different metaphors for people to try to, to understand at least how we see all this going down. Um, yeah. And brain and health and body, they're all really important. You know, I like to think that 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 is all intertwined with these stories that live in our minds and that are intertwined in our bodies too. And, and, you know, they aren't just ours. They're the stories of, of our ancestors and of our cultures and of our histories. And this is, this is mysterious and deep, you know? Yeah. No, thanks for explaining that. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. So I heard you say that it's, it's about helping people recognize that this inner narrative or this constant, cognitive script that goes on and runs and plays is not the only thing that defines us. I mean, I always tell people your mind is an instrument. It's not your, um, your total identity. Would you say that's accurate? Totally. I mean, it's embedded in the language too. It's like this, you know, someone comes to me and says, well, well, I have ADHD. I have ADHD and I'm 16 and I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 10 and I've been taking Ritalin ever since and I have ADHD and don't tell me that I have ADHD. Okay, well, what does ADHD mean for you? Well, I'm distracted in class. I can't pay attention to what the teacher says, so I can't do my homework and I need extra help on the test. Okay. Well, do you feel distracted talking to me right now? Well, no, no, not at all. Okay, so we could say that you don't have ADHD right now. Well, okay, yeah, I guess. Okay, sure. Okay, so then it wouldn't be fair to say that you have what we're calling ADHD all the time. Well, I guess not. So, you know, we slowly kind of tease apart this narrative because... These diagnoses are impactful and, you know, parents hire us to, to fix the ADHD. We're hired to fix the ADHD, but really the craft is getting underneath that and, and fixing the, you know, the undercurrent. And that's true of all these symptoms. Yeah. Do you think that ADHD is like overly diagnosed, especially in the United States? I mean, we have like very high stats on that, especially amongst males. What are your thoughts about that? And what do you know about the statistics? I, I think some... I, I mean, frankly, I think some families use it as kind of a blanket, you know, and I think that 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 diagnosis is destructive. I think not to blame families or parents. I don't mean that in any way. I think the whole culture, you know, has shifted so dramatically towards medication and fixing things as opposed to to working and talking things through. And I think it's so easy to just label a ADHD diagnosis when in actuality, 
you know, I see, yes, a very small percentage of the population, so it wouldn't be fair for me, but I've certainly seen a lot of kids um, resolve their symptoms of ADHD, not through medication, but through learning to dissect the narrative and through learning where their strengths and weaknesses lie. And for some people, they need to reread an article more than once. And that doesn't mean they have ADHD, man. Who told us that we're supposed to comprehend everything we see right away? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to read things over and over again sometimes. And I'm sure yeah. mine never drifted in 10th grade algebra either, right? <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I mean, it's almost like we sometimes use these labels or diagnoses or categories as almost a... Um, sometimes it can be used as a cop-out sometimes it's accurate sometimes it's you know convenience and be like oh well don't expect me to change i mean i've heard people say this too like oh that's just the way i am i'm adhd don't expect me to be present for a conversation for 15 minutes with my wife because i'm adhd do you think i mean as somebody who's licensed who's gone through the system do you think that you know there is some harm with the these um diagnostic uh categories that are sometimes unwisely used or when they're unwisely used to be more specific um, it can actually cause more harm than, than healing and benefit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just because, and this is not, you know, I'm, I don't mean blame in any way. I think for some people, it's sometimes, obviously, you know, diag diagnosis can be helpful. However, I would say for, yeah, the I see so many teenage boys that, that have held this diagnosis since they were kids and they, they identify with it and they think that there is something fundamentally wrong with them. And it can often, I think, radically impede their intellectual development because they, you know, they attach stuff to it. I'm stupid. I'm slow. I don't read well. You know, it, it saddens me to think that that um, a particular doctor on a particular day with a particular parent might just, you know, write a prescription for ADHD because it's the easiest thing to do. And maybe he genuinely thinks it'll help. But yeah, I do think it can absolutely have long term devastating impact. Yeah. And this this is, I think, looping back around again to this idea of the narrative and how um you know, the things that we tell ourselves over and over again, or the labels that have been slapped on us, and we keep fulfilling or stepping into that meaningful label in the way that we do, can cause us to get stuck, can inhibit our potential. And it almost sounds like it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you also do this uh, work, Wilderness Guide with Stepping Stones Project, and this is really interesting and powerful project. So from my understanding, you do help young men um, through rites of passage and um, coming into their own, uh, so to speak. Does this also have to do with this idea of you know masculinity or the energetics of masculinity with young men? Uh, can you tell us more about that Wilderness uh, Guide uh, project? Sure. Well, that's an organization that arranges groups to to start meeting when they're in seventh grade and they, they meet periodically once or twice a month until they start ninth grade. And then, you know, we also go on several backpacking trips into the backcountry. And um, this last one I did ended over a year ago. But um, yeah, we we knew these boys for two years. They were going into ninth grade and uh we went out into yosemite high in the mountains and you know sent them out on a a one day solo in nature where they fasted and sat by themselves for 24 hours and uh 
Yeah, it was quite edgy. Two of the boys had a hard time in the night, but they came back and, you know, we held the base camp. And, wow. Um, and it was amazing to see these kids walk at, in at dawn. They got sent out at dawn and they came back at dawn the next day. And they were just so, so dropped in to themselves and such a deeper perspective. Nearly all of them checked in and spoke about wanting to help more, wanting to contribute more to their families, wanting to... Wow. Um, just be less narcissistic and think less about themselves. I mean, they all, you know, communicated this, you know, that's amazing. Yeah. Did they go back home and, you know, were they immediately different? Of course not, you know, but I do believe that this experience is embedded and lives in them and they'll always have it as a reference point. And, and we witness them in that. Um, and we witness them in their growth over these two years. And that's what it's all about is helping helping youth feel seen and accepted and tolerated for who they are um, and really drawing out their uh, their innate genius, so to speak. Right. I mean, that's amazing that after one day of, of uh, being out in nature fasting, you know, you were able to witness such a massive transformation or shift in, in many of these young men. And like, yeah, as you said, once you go back home, you know, and I hear this a lot from people who go to retreats or, or whatever. It's like, yeah, I had this like awesome injection. I was feeling so full and alive. And then once you get back within a week or two, it's like back to the same old routine. But the point here that we're also missing is, well, what if we have more time like that or space like that as a part of our daily lives, whether it's meditation or getting out into nature? These openings that you may have experienced or witnessed on some of these retreats in the wilderness could be perpetually um, retrieved or accessible. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. And and we also have to remember that psyche functions on its own timeline. And we have to remind our clients of that. And we have to remind ourselves that. And, you know, whether we want to quit smoking or lose weight or <laughs> get control over our kids, it's, you know, these things take time. Um, and, and what I, what I did want to say too, is that, you know, I still, I think back to moments of my first meditation retreat 13 years ago when I was 23 years old and, and impactful moments that really stay with me and inform who I am. And I'm able to access that space when I'm with other people too, you know, nice. Yeah. It, le it almost like leaves a deep imprint or impression that's accessible to one's consciousness. And of course, the more we, we deepen that imprint or indent, the easier, uh, the more accessible it becomes over time, too. That's kind of one way to understand this process of transformation. Absolutely. We start to, you know, get really curious about what that space is and kind of dust it off more and do more work to kind of clean it off and bring our, you know, bring out our fire or our light or, or whatever we want to call it. Or maybe it's a calm, expansive space, you know. You also have done some uh, specialization in uh, cannabis uh, dependence, especially with youth. Is that correct? Well, you know, it's extremely common in, in the Bay Area. So it's, um, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's often, um, a parent will call me and they'll, you know, it's often a presenting symptom, not so dissimilar from ADHD. You know, my son smokes weed and, and often, and my son has ADHD, you know, and, and one might be a medication of the other, by the way, it's could be an attempt to, to sort of, you know, self-medicate, um, or who knows, but yeah, you know, it's very popular in the Bay area. I hear that half to 75% of, 
of boys, at least according to some of my clients, are, you know, pretty regular smokers, even in high school. To be fair, too, the whole culture and world around cannabis is changing and we have to keep that in mind and we have to watch out for putting too much of our, you know, last <laughs> 50, last hundred years and, you know, onto, onto this plant that has been projected upon for millennia. Um, and, you know, and like ADHD, we have to get curious about it and we have to look at what function it serves. And, and you know, the big question in, in families, if we took out marijuana, would everything else be fine? And inevitably, it's not. It's usually just, it's a, it's a symbol that, that can get pointed to. And I'm certainly not advocating, you know, I think the thing that, that the, the pretty PC answer these days around the Bay Area is that, um, is that, Weed is very harmful to the teenage brain. We all need to be responsible role models and, you know, not smoke and show that to our kids. And we need to teach them to, to you know, honor their adversity and not numb out their emotions. And, you know, and I think that's I agree with all of that. And I don't think that's helpful either. I think we have to look at look at our lives and, and, you know, look at the role it, it serves and, and everyone, it's all case by case too. So would you say that there are benefits and harm to using cannabis, but it also depends on the context, the person using it, why they're using it. But can you tell us more about um, what are some of the pros and, and uh, cons to using cannabis at a young age? Because we also hear quite commonly that, a, you know, an adult brain isn't done kind of forming until about age 21 to 25, sometimes depending on gender. So so some people say that, you know, making this argument that, well, if you're using psychoactive drugs like cannabis, you're actually impeding or affecting what would be a natural, more healthy process of your neurology, so to speak. So I wanted to hear your thoughts about that. And then the next second question would be, um, why are some of so many youth using it from, from your observations with, with clients? Uh-huh. Those are great questions. You know, I can't speak to benefits and risks of cannabis. I have I have adult clients, too, that come in and, you know, they're like, I smoke cannabis. Is something wrong with me, right? This is like this big question. You know, you research, right? It's not so different from you research coffee, right? There's going to be some studies that are like, it's good for this. It's bad for this. It's good for you. It's bad for you. And who's paying for all this anyway? And it's it's really hard to know. So I do think we, we are all... As, as adults, um, you know, we're responsible for doing sort of our own phenomenological studies of ourselves in relation to whatever substance we use. And, and I believe that fully. And I think that therapy is a great place to explore those relationships. Um, you know, and for teenagers, yeah, that's different. Haven't done this research. I don't know. It seems like there's ample research that exactly what you say suggests that for the developing brain, it's you know, better to lay off cannabis. It makes sense. Um, and, and I would say also we're kind of like infantile in our understanding of cannabis, basically, because for the last hundred years, it's been so prohibited. We haven't really studied CBD and THC and all these other things and how they actually impact. And, you know, and, and it could be that the particular extraction could be helpful for some teenager if, you know, we gave it to him in a pill in the morning. It's not such a big deal, for example, or something like that. I don't know. 
why do you think some from your observations and your clientele why what are some of the common reasons uh why young men do use cannabis is it about escapism is it about having fun is it about pleasure uh is it about bringing out creativity i mean what are some of the common themes or reasons why you've observed in your clients you know i gotta tell you it's not generally impressive i don't have <laughs> many clients that are like i smoke and i write poetry and paint for example or i smoke and i clean the house or i smoke and i feel inspired to go to the soup kitchen for example you know most most i think it's generally an f you to to the parents or the school and it's a reaction I think to the intense pressure that they feel and because it's kind of quasi legal it's still the cool thing to do and it's it's counterculture and you know it's pleasurable and it does lift the feelings of um family bullshit and school bullshit and you know and I think probably teenagers too like like adults have have an innate desire, at least sometimes, not everyone, some some people to alter their consciousness in various ways. And marijuana is incredibly popular now with people from age, you know, 13 to 80. I mean, it's just becoming popular in the culture. So we all kind of have to adjust. And, and we are, you know, in our own way, too. So definitely in, in the Muslim community, I've definitely observed uh, this has also been an increase um, presence, right, of parents coming to me and going, Kareem, my son smokes weed or they're using cannabis. And I, I mean, for the many Muslim parents, marijuana is like the same thing as crack or cocaine to them. Right. It's like it's all the same uh, stigmatized, uh, you know, drugs and, and, and all these types of things. Obviously, from their perspective, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're also looking at it more from a moral perspective, too, not just like health wise or, you know, they're not getting good grades in school, although that's usually branches of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, I think, even more common, especially with clients in California, because it is so embedded in the culture, it is so uh, commonplace, so to speak, right? Uh, almost as much as as the sun, you know. <laughs> so you you do you do see that even in the Muslim community. But it sounds like even with your clients, their parents are also uncomfortable or concerned about their uh, children's usage of marijuana um, as well. And so there is a lot of awareness that is, uh, you know, yet to be attained, so to speak. And as you said, there's very little research that has been um, done fully on this plant, and, and some people would call it a medicine. Um, but I would also argue that we still don't know a lot about consciousness itself, and we're still making breakthroughs and understanding how the brain works. There's always, of course, a lot to learn, but I wanted to kind of get your perspective as someone who's also, you know, um, working uh, with the community in the Bay Area, and, and uh, it sounds like there's still... Um, various perspectives uh, and data points around this topic of cannabis dependence and, and whether or not it's beneficial or harmful. For sure. I mean, and, and, you know, and to me, it's like not the most important thing either. It's like, we're, we're always, you work with a family and you're straddling your relationship between the parents and the teenager. Right. And that, that is the important thing to hold is that thread because that is the, is what, is important and what needs to reconnect is that thread of relationship. And, you know, I step in and kind of try to re tie that together. Um, so I, you know, on the one hand have to align with my client around him smoking cannabis, especially if he has no interest in quitting and say, Oh wow, you know, cool. 
you smoke weed. What do you like about it? And then I also have to hold the parent's hand and say, yes, this is concerning, of course, and we're working with this. Yeah, no, it's very true because oftentimes, like with some of the youth work I've done, parents kind of have this you know, drop off our kid mentality and Kareem will fix it, you know, but it's like, even if your son quits marijuana, if you two still don't have open channels of communication and healthy bonding and intimacy, you know, part of, part of my understanding of, of addictions in general is because people are escaping their reality. They don't want to confront their reality or their reality is painful and uncomfortable. And so, especially for young people, if they don't really feel like they have meaning or purpose, or they're constantly being criticized or, or feeling un loved unaccepted by their own parents and family then of course you know you can't just assume that okay well if they quit this quote-unquote bad habit then that's going to solve everything right so i'm hearing you say we always have to look at all the variables and all the uh, layers of the dynamics here and it should never be compartmentalized as just one thing it's usually interconnected to other things we're taking away more than we're giving by promoting cannabis usage with with youth especially because most young people don't even know basic things about self-awareness and uh modifying behaviors and achieving goals as it is so what about what happens when we throw alcohol and ecstasy and cannabis into the picture i mean it can get very dangerous and scary no and i would never i would never promote cannabis use among youth or anyone i mean i think that's an individual decision and i i wouldn't come in and recommend that to to anybody and and because it is so incredibly prominent in the culture i think we have to to look at it objectively in some way and you know and be fishy when when it's the main focal point you know and and it doesn't it i just have a message (laughs) if anyone is listening it does not work there is no some kind of like magic formula that i that i know from graduate school that i could just walk up to a teenager and say to him to, to, to make him stop smoking marijuana. That's just not a productive way of looking at it. Right. Have you found that any of the youth who have done these wilderness uh, retreats, um, they were users of, of cannabis and after the retreat, they felt that that was no longer uh, of use to them? Yes. Really? Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you, how do you think that happens? Or why does that happen? I think that, um, well, I had, I'll, I'll uh, talk about an actual case example with a young man I was working with who was 17 and quite out of control. Um, and yes, he was smoking a, a large, like a good amount of cannabis. Um, and however, he was also throwing eggs at cars. He was getting in fights. He was drinking. He was driving. He was saying, you know, F you to his parents and getting, you know, his just out of control. Um, and this is not that unusual these days. This happens, you know, kids don't get boundaries in their youth. And I don't know, I don't know what happens, but, um, his parents decided to send him away to Utah for an eight week immersion in the wilderness this summer. And, uh, he came back and he was completely different. He was dropped in I would say multiple, you know, just layers down from where he was. It's like he moved from his head to his core. And um, yeah, and, you know, he stopped smoking. He stopped certainly while he was there and he saw that it wasn't serving him and wasn't good for him and wasn't what he wanted. And um, yeah, will he never smoke weed again? I have no idea. I, You know, how long will this last for? I don't know. But in any case, I'm very glad that he got this kind of reset. You know, I think that's really important. And 
And I think, you know, and, and I think part, as, as responsible adults that, you know, I think we're all responsible to, to ourselves. And, and certainly with a substance like cannabis and coffee and alcohol, like, yeah, we don't want to use these if, if we don't need them, certainly chronically. And, and, and we're all human and we all have attachments and we're all working on ourselves. And yeah, we just, we do our best to, to get by in this world and be healthy as best we can and deal with our emotions and our complex lives, you know, and teenagers are in the same boat. We, we, we can't assume that the world of a 16 year old isn't complex. That's ridiculous. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I appreciate that feedback. So Scott, I'd like to move on to our um, last segment of the show today. You are also a practitioner of Ashtanga Yoga for over 10 years now. Now, first of all, can you define for us what is yoga and what is Ashtanga Yoga? Oh, man, that's a hard thing to define. Well, you know, in my own limited terms, uh, yoga is, is union, right? And so yoga is this link together be between mind and body, between thoughts and movement. And so, of course, it relates to somatic psychotherapy, too. It kind of is like somatic psychotherapy. And um, Ashtanga yoga is a particular branch of yoga that, that was developed by Patabi Joyce, uh, who was born in, in Mysore, India in, in the year 1915. And he studied with Krishnamacharya, who is essentially responsible for bringing yoga to the West. Okay. And uh, so his students were Patabi Joyce and Iyengar. So, you know, Iyengar is obviously very popular. Patabi Joyce developed his own yoga called Ashtanga. And then if you see a class that's like called vinyasa flow or like core flow or hot yoga or anything like this, these are all kind of westernized offshoots of Ashtanga. Got it. And um, why, what does practicing it mean to you? And how do you think it's actually useful to the human being? It's, it's useful on so many levels, Kareem. It's um, every day it's, you know, it's a ritual, it's a grounding ritual. Right. So every morning, at least six days a week, we, we practice, we come to the mat, um, we orient our lifestyles around it in some way. We do get up early. Um, what time do you get up to do your yoga practice every day? I get about five. Wow. You hear that, Muslims? He gets up at Fajr time. That's the time of our dawn prayer. So <laughs> that's commitment right there. <laughs> well, it's important, you know, for spiritual dedication. And, you know, many people get up that early to pray as well. And that's that's what it is for me. And our sun salutations are not, you know, I think they're, it'd be interesting. I'm sure people have thought about the relationship of sun salutations to prostrations in, in prayer, you know. So yeah, this is how our practice starts, and then we go into standing postures and seated postures, and all the while, yeah, we're focused on our gaze and our um, our breath, and that's it's really a focus builder. It's it's great for health, and it's also just great as a way of psychologically meeting yourself where you're at every morning. And not only that, but we practice in community too, you know, so we're, we're joined by others. And um, my wife, I yell it, actually runs the, a, a program where she teaches. So she gets up at 3.45 and practices before she teaches. Um, and she, she, yeah, so she every day teaches, you know, we'll have 10 to 15 people come in of all different levels, all different ages, learning this, this practice that, that I believe to be 
incredibly helpful for me anyway. It's not for everyone, but for me, it's been very, very beneficial. Now, some people of other faiths might go, oh, I'm not going to do yoga because that's connected to, you know, Hinduism, or it's almost a religious practice. So I'm actually almost betraying my own religion if I practice yoga. What are your thoughts about that? Well, yoga is not faith-based actually at all. And uh, yoga does not exclude anyone. And, and yoga in and of itself is not a religion. There is a philosophy associated with yoga, but um, even that, you know, is broken up into different different factions. And there's, you know, the Advaita Vedanta philosophy, there's Hindu philosophy, there's Shakya Yoga philosophy, there's Buddhism, there's these different religions that are perhaps connected in some way, and certainly to Indian culture, but yoga in and of itself is, has never excluded anyone and, and um, certainly continues not to and shouldn't. And um, not unlike therapy, you know, therapy is open to everyone and, and requires its own language for each person. You know, not everyone believes in God, maybe, and not everyone... Um, you know, wants to um, chant even that could be edgy for some people, and and um, you know, but the the philosophy and the the postures themselves are are not exclusive in any way. Right. I mean, I I started to um, learn more about yoga myself when I moved to California, and uh, also would. I wouldn't call myself a practitioner, more of a stretcher, but there's certainly a lot of yoga poses. And it's it, one of the things I took away from yoga is it really taught me how to breathe, you know. Um, and what's funny is like even when I've gone and gotten like massages and while I'm breathing uh, during the massage, I've had like my therapist uh, tell me, hey, you must do yoga because the way you're breathing is very common to the yogic practice, you know, and uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I, I did learn, I think one of the things that yoga did teach me was how to breathe. And that's so important, because obviously, I mean, I know in Arabic and in Hebrew, the word for self or soul is also connected to the word for breath. Um, so you have, I think it's nefesh in Hebrew. And uh, it's also nefes in Arabic. So it's very similar. And that means breath as well as it's connected to this word for, for self. So breath is so important when it comes to integrating oneself. And I think this also builds on this theme of, of somatic uh, psychology that we we're talking yeah. about here. The other reflection I had was, and you've seen how Muslims pray, right? You know the postures that they do. I mean, some of these moves are found in yogic practice sure, as well. Absolutely. And one of the one of the yeah. things that I find with with, you know, individuals in the Muslim community when their prayer isn't they're not feeling very present or as you described, you know, with many examples today, being stuck in our heads, you know, thinking too much about, you know, the I and what I have to do and this and that, and you're not even present. You know, you're just kind of reciting the prayers and doing the motions and you're not actually taking those deep breaths and pauses and letting your body sink into those positions which is the way that you know prayer in Islam is is actually prescribed uh, so it's interesting that there is that commonality with with yogic practice and even the daily uh, ritual prayer of the Islamic faith mm -hmm. well you know plenty of people do yoga distracted too you know so <laughs> sure um, and you know you make a good point too and this could relate to our conversation too earlier it's hard it's hard to slow down and be present in our world you know and we all know that. And, um, you know, what I wanted to say when you were talking, Kareem, is it, it made me think of uh, music, actually. And lately, I've been just considering I've been studying classical guitar now for um, 
four years really solid. Kareem taught me guitar way back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you know, and I have been slowly, slowly learning rhythm and count and timing and, and all these things that for millennia have been used to get us out of our heads. And and, you know, in Ashtanga, it's brilliant. Um, there is language that does just that. It's a rhythm and it's a, it goes on a particular count, right? There's a particular breath count. It's incredibly deep and intentional. It's not just like, oh, we get up there and we do a headstand when we feel like it and we take a few deep breaths and we come down in child's pose and then we stretch and then we think about something that we're grateful for and then the teacher talks about his walk on the ocean. No, this is like the real deal. This is five breaths and jumping and bandhas and drishti. And it it doesn't really care if sadness comes up or if anger comes up. Like there isn't really room for it in the actual practice of itself. We can certainly work on our capacity to build with it, but or I'm sorry, to be with it. And, but the the essence is that we continue practicing, you know, we don't stop to say, Oh, my body, you know, I don't feel like doing this anymore. My body needs rest. You know, we don't really do that. Right. That's more is discipline. Yeah. It's pushing your body and your mind to beyond its edges and beyond its comfort zone, which is how you have breakthroughs essentially. It does. It requires surrender, too. You know, we ask people to practice pretty daily and, and we ask them to practice in the tradition and we we try not to be dogmatic about it. Yeah, we aren't dogmatic about demanding that people practice exactly according to tradition, which many Ashtanga studios are accused of being perhaps rightfully so. You know, we acknowledge different bodies and different minds and different different ways of being and we want students to commit, you know, we want students to, to show up and, and practice and be dedicated students. And, you know, I think too often it's so, so easy to just say, well, you know, I don't, I don't really feel, you, you know, I don't feel like getting up and praying today. I don't feel like doing right. it. Why should yeah. I, you know, and, you know, in order to really kind of move beyond ourselves, I think, just as in learning an instrument, right? We have to dedicate ourselves to to the practice of it. Right. You can never you can never transform if you don't have time and repetition, uh, consistency in that practice. And this idea is also something we hear often, uh, and I, I hear it in my community is this idea of well, I don't feel like praying, you know, because you know Muslims their tradition says praying five times a day, and it's like sometimes people don't feel like praying. Right. Um, But is it really, you know, about what we feel or is it sometimes more about what's best for us? Because there's a lot of things we may not feel like doing. Right. Or or wanting, but it's actually better for us. You know, like I don't always feel like eating healthy, but I know it's so much better for my body and I'll actually feel better when I do versus if I just give in to the ego's attachments of eating, you know, uh, a cheesesteak sub. Of course, right? of course. <laughs> which I love, by the way, I'm a huge fan. So <laughs> you are allowed to have that every once in a while. But, you know, and and our thoughts and feelings are transitory, too. You know, we have to remember that. Right. It's they they come and go. And again, I think a key and, point and is. How else, yeah, sorry. I just it's just how else are we going to get this without the daily practice? It's like we have to have discipline to see this. So I'm obviously a huge advocate of this kind of more you know five six times a week we 
we pray or whatever we do as our grounding foundation and that's our rhythm and that's our life and then you know our what our ego wants and says and demands on top of that is kind of extra and and of course there are demands we have to take our children to school and and this and that and yet gosh i'm just such a strong proponent of finding a space to to really develop one's practice whatever it may be you know i think it's so so essential Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I bear witness to just seeing your transformation, you know, since the day I met you and, uh, you know, your body is just in much better shape. You've lost a lot of weight. You're much stronger. And, uh, I mean, I witnessed all of that just over the years and like, man, Scotty, you really took this, you know, upon yourself, this practice of yoga. And I, and I saw the dedication and the transformation and it's a beautiful thing to witness. So you're, you're almost living proof for, for what you're claiming here. And, uh, I think that's really good, valuable advice. Scotty pro. Are there any last tips or suggestions that you'd like to leave the audience with in helping us improve in our well-being or this connection of mind and body, which you specialize in? Yeah, I just want to encourage everyone who wants any kind of support to really reach out and, uh, you know, call Kareem or call a therapist in your area and and start working with someone you resonate with, you know, and, and this is important. We all need to have mentors. We all need to have coaches. Everybody needs guidance. This let's, let's end the stigma around of reaching out for support. And, you know, life is hard. Families are hard. It's hard growing up. It's hard being an adult. It's hard finding our way in this culture that every day has, you know, more and more suffering and yeah, whether you, you reach out to a therapist or a group or friends, let's, you know, I just strongly advocate uh, the power of community. So so please reach out and, and ask for what you need. Love it. Love it. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show today. God bless you and your family and your work. And um, as always, it's an honor to see you. And um, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime soon. All right. Thank you. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit NurHuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem. That's Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem.